0: You're listening to the seventh Jesus' words to his church, a new sermon series by Crosspoint, Peachtree City. For more information, please visit us at www.crosspointptc.com. All right. Hey, we only have one more week of that video. What do you think? Just kidding. Just kidding. Hey, good morning. I'm uh, Jason Piffle. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point. Super excited you guys are here. The summer is almost done. Anybody else feeling it? Like back to, back to the real world we will be in just a couple weeks. Uh, we're actually going to be wrapping this uh, series up next week. Uh, we'll be hitting the last church, the Church of Laodicea. And then we'll have like a week or two of just kind of odds and ends. And then on August 9th, we're going to actually start a new series called Why Church. And it's going to answer that question, like, why church? Like, why do we exist? Why are we here? What's the point of church? Why come? And the whole thing. So I, we're really excited about it. We think it's going to be a cool thing. So uh, in case you hadn't heard it, uh, Jamie and Brooks had their baby this week. It's really pretty exciting. Good for them. So Jamie, I think, or did less of the work, and I think Brooks did more of the work. So, uh, so we're excited about a new baby, Quinn, who's in the world, and she's as cute as they get. So she's not quite as round as her big sister, but she is super, super sweet. So we're excited about them. And uh, so therefore, Jamie is off this week. And so I'm here. I'm here to fill in the big shoes of Jamie Vassini, who does an amazing job every week. We're really, really blessed to have him and excited that, uh, that he came here and his family came here. So um, we're going to be on um, kind of continuing in our series uh, in the book of Revelation. So we're doing the first three chapters. Uh, The series is called The Seven. And so we're going to continue today, and we're going to talk about the Church of Philadelphia. All right, so you can open your Bibles if you want and get a chance. Uh, There's actually some Bibles in the front of you in the little baskets. And I think it's like page, what, 665. So if you're having a hard time, it's the last book of the Bible, and we're in the kind of the first section of it and we will just do a few more verses in here and then we're on to other things in the next couple weeks. I feel like I'm talking fast. All right, let me slow down a little bit. So let me tell you a little bit. We're going to get right into it uh, because we've got uh, a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, You would think just a few verses like this would not take that long to kind of just like fly through. Uh, But the reality is, is there is just a ton of great, great stuff in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. So every time we hear this word, every time I hear it, uh, I think of the Philadelphia that we know, which was named after this city, uh, the city of brotherly love. That's the reason Philadelphia here in the Middle East was named the way it was. And uh, Philadelphia was just a great, great city and uh, so we're going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, it was a pretty interesting city in that this whole entire area was really dominated by earthquakes. I don't know if you know that or not, and so um, very frequently the people of Philadelphia would feel a tremor, and then they would just basically bolt for cover, and it wouldn't be in the city because every, the entire city could like come down upon them, so they were like bolting for the gates, get out of the city, get as far as away, away as they could, and then when things settled down, then they would come back in. So it was kind of like it's uh, claim to fame. Do you call it a claim to fame when it's a disaster? I'm not sure. Um, but I think what's behind all this is a lot of uh, kind of volcanic type stuff. Uh, they actually had some uh, hot springs or right around the city that people would travel in from the country and they would go to the hot springs for kind of like medicinal purposes. I'm thinking what's better than a hot tub? Nothing. So um, they got this kind of medieval hot tub thing going on here in the city of Philadelphia. And so there's lots of brotherly love. Everybody loves each other because just hanging out in the hot springs. And uh, so Philadelphia is a, a pretty, pretty cool place. Um, but in AD 17, uh, there was a pretty big earthquake. In fact, it was big enough to level the whole entire city, flattened pretty much. And Caesar at the times of the Roman Empire loved this city. And so he did one thing that just rarely, rarely happens ever, ever. He reduced everybody's taxes. When does that happen? Never. So he reduced the, everybody's taxes for the city down to zero. He says, Take the money, rebuild the city that I love. In fact, here's some of my money I'll give to you. And so he gave some of his own cash out of his own pocket to rebuild the city because he loved it so much. And then uh, the city in kind of in homage or in respect or thankfulness paid him back by renaming the city Neo Caesarea, which means the new city of Caesar. So this is kind of all happening back in these days. So AD 17. By AD 90... What happened is uh, the church of Jesus has, like, like the church has been, re- or the city's been rebuilt, and then there's a church uh, of Christians in the city, along with uh, a lot of pagan things that are going on, which we've talked about in past weeks, and then also uh, a Jewish temple that's also in the city. These are all important things to know. And the reason I tell you all these things is because every single one of these passages are connected to historical background of the actual city, and you're going to see that as we kind of continue on this morning. Uh, one final custom, and then we're going to kind of get into the meat of this whole thing. Uh, it was, a, I think, a fairly common practice. There's a little bit of debate on whether this is true or not, so take it for what it is. But I think it applies to what we're talking about. Um, there was a kind of a common occurrence, apparently, where leaders of the city, if they were on the city council, uh, and they did an amazing job, they spent their whole life serving the community, they would get a special pillar in the temple that was erected to them and put their name on it and maybe like their years of service and maybe some cool little saying. I don't know what it has said on the pillar, but it was cool. And so as you walk through the temple, everybody would recognize that your name was on one of these giant pillars in the temple. Kinda like when you go to picnic park and you look down and there's like the little bricks on the ground that say if people's names donated this much money and stuff. It's a very similar type of deal, except for they got a giant pillar. So I would love to have a giant pillar, but I won't have one anyway. Uh, so this book uh, is ex- pretty much exactly the opposite of last week. Okay, if you guys remember the book of Sar- or the, the Church of Sardis, um, was there anything good to be said about them? Y'all remember? No, nothing, zero. In fact, I think if if that was the week, I think ja- Jamie said that it was like the city of Satan. No, it said like that was like their calling card. Was that that week? If I remember right, nobody's moving the heads. I'm just, I'm just here. I'll just talk to these people up here. So, um, so anyway, just kidding. Uh, so there was really nothing good to be said for the Church of Sardis. The Church of Philadelphia, on the other hand, nothing but good things to say. Nothing but good things. Nothing negative whatsoever. And so I think if we look at this passage through that lens today and through the lens of history and through the lens that if you look through as we read this passage, you can see all this imagery that happens to this passage. Like there's a key, there's a door, there's the temple, there's the synagogue, there's the New Jerusalem, like all these things are connected to how we interpret the passage. And so it's really, really cool stuff. So let me read the passage to you, okay? Um, It's going to be up on the screen um but if you can't see that it's also in the bible imagine that so uh here we go uh page 665 and uh revelation 3 we're going to start in verse 7 here we go oh sorry let me show you my map real quick how about that because this is really cool um so this is the map of kind of the middle east if you look down in the bottom right hand corner you can see israel okay and so up in the middle where the purple is um these are the seven churches you can see it kind of connects them all And actually kind of a cool thing is the letters were written in order in which a courier would go and deliver the letters. Does that make sense? So the first one was Ephesus. You see it bottom left. And then it kind of goes up to the top and then down. And so we're at Philadelphia. And then next week will be Laodicea. Isn't that amazing? So anyway, I thought it was kind of cool. And I totally missed that cue. And we are moving on. All right. So uh, let me read this passage. It's really a, a pretty cool passage. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who are holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name I will make those who are in the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. Sorry, I'm on the wrong thing here. Hold on. I should probably read here. Is this the right one? Loved you. Since since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that Satan who claim, uh, Where am I? Sorry. Where am I? Like this thing is like flying all over the place. This is so unprofessional. Here we go. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from God. And I'll also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, so many times, I think for me, and if you guys feel like this, uh, when, you, when you go and you hear a sermon, I kind of go away usually going, all right. I'm kind of dumb. This is me. Like, just give me, like, the cookies on the bottom shelf. Just tell me what I should know, okay? So I'm going to give you the punchline at the beginning. How about that? So I'm a terrible, I'm told I'm a terrible joke teller, so I'm just going to give you the punch time at the beginning. And so here's, here's what it is right here. Remaining steadfast in Jesus in the midst of persecution will bring the gospel to the region and the church to Christ. Remaining steadfast in Jesus in the midst of persecution will bring the gospel to the region and the church to Christ. And so if I was going to wrap up succinctly what this passage is talking about, I think this is what it is. And, I, and I'm going to try to prove this and go through this whole entire thing, and, and hopefully this will make sense. So here we go. We're going to start with verse 7. We're going to talk about this idea of personal access, and I think that's what's going to unpack here in verse 7. To the angel in the church of Philadelphia, right? We just read these. These are the words of him who are holy and true, who holds the key of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So there's really kind of four things here that the passage is talking about Jesus in particular. And a lot of these passages, or maybe all of them, kind of have a description of who Jesus is, and then it relates to what he's telling them later on, okay? So he thinks it's appropriate, which I agree, uh, to talk about these four things. First of all, Jesus is holy. So he's completely pure in motive indeed. So there's never been anything bad that Jesus ever thought, said, or done. Okay, he's holy, he's perfect, he's pure. As it compares to us, like, that's not even a comparison. If you look back in Isaiah six, that's why Isaiah had the response that he did to the holy God. He was like, I'm a sinner, and I'm in front of a holy God and I'm ashamed and I am completely blown away by God's holiness. And so Jesus is saying, I am holy. There's he saying, I am God. Okay, first thing. Second thing. He says, I'm true. So a lot of times when we hear that word true, we think, okay, Jesus is a truth teller, okay? That Jesus says true things. But this passage in particular is talking about Jesus being genuine, okay? Like, he's the real deal. He can be trusted. Jesus is like, um, you know, like he's not some fantasy of the past. He's not like some guy that's come and then all of a sudden... Well, did he really exist or not? And so he's saying he is true. Three, and the third thing, Jesus holds the key of David. It took a little while to figure this one out because I was like, what does this really mean? Uh, but this is really a, pa- uh, a reference back to Isaiah. You can write this down, Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. It's a description of a guy named Eliakim. And Eliakim was a faithful servant of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the few righteous kings in the Old Testament, okay? And so what the king did is he gave Eliakim a key, and he says, You are in control of whoever enters into my palace, and you are in control of whoever enters into my presence. And so if you think about who Jesus is as the key holder of David, that Jesus is the one who holds the key for God, for people to enter into the palace of God, the, 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 the kingdom of God, and in particular, the presence of the Creator. That's a big, big deal, don't you think? And I read that, and I was like, that's amazing. That's amazing. Fourth thing, Jesus opens a door that no one can shut. And I think what he's really referencing, too, if you think kind of how these are all building, he's opening this door of salvation, and he's saying, you know what? I'm here, and you have access to me and through me you have access to the father and that is a big deal and we i hope that you see that that is important and that's life changing and that is will develop you and guide you in the direction that you really need to go it also says something to this effect it says that basically like no one uh, will take you away from him there's a passage here in John 10 and this is what it says it says my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So there's a reference to the Trinity, like, well, the relationship between God, the Father and God, and the Son being the same thing right there. But there's also this thing that like, if you come into Christ, like, nobody can take that away. Once Jesus regenerates you, that's not gonna change. He's gonna keep you because he is the key holder to the door and he opens and shuts it. And so those are very, very important things. And so what he's saying to the people of Philadelphia is I can be trusted, I'm God, I can be relied upon. I'm not gonna abandon you, I'm not gonna desert you, I'm not gonna turn my back on you. I'm not in some way weak that I can't do what I say because I'm God. And that's a very important thing. And for the people of Philadelphia, that was great news because they were a people who were being persecuted often and in many different ways. I think we can speculate as to how that could have played out. So let me just do that. It doesn't say this in the passage, but we know kind of biblically there's different things that happened. People got whipped, people got put in jail, People weren't allowed to participate in the community. People weren't allowed to maybe buy and sell or to run their business. People could have been stoned to death, crucified. There's a million different things that could be happening. And for Philadelphia, this could have been a very, very rough place to live. And so what Jesus is saying is, in spite of your circumstances, I can be trusted. In spite of the sacrifice that you guys are living in, in spite of this persecution that you're enduring, I am bigger than that, and I'm worth it. And I think it's a good thing for us to hear this morning, and a good thing for them to hear. And so that's where he starts, as he says, you have personal access to me when life is hard. The second thing that he goes after is he says, you have a personal opportunity to live a life on mission. Okay, so verse eight says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so Jesus is repeating this little phrase. There's an open door that no one can shut. So the first one is really is in reference to them personally, I think to their salvation, you know, their personal connection to Jesus. And then I think the second one is really saying, I have, you have this open door for you in the community for that same thing that you experienced to go forth into the people around you. So you have this connection. You should want this for other people. Does that make sense? It's really pretty simple. And I think that's really what he's getting at with this whole thing. They have a great opportunity this door is open. Colossians 4.3, Paul even references this. He says, he says, pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. So Paul is personally being persecuted, right? He's in chains, he's in prison, and he's still looking for ways to share Jesus with other people. It's amazing. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to the people in Philadelphia. You are in chains, and you're experiencing very similar things. Press on. It's worth it. And then he goes on to say, in the rest of this passage, I've kind of taken this a little bit out of order, He says, I know your deeds. And I think when I first read this passage, I thought, ah, man, here's the condemnation. I know your deeds. I don't know what you're up to. It kind of all depends on how you say it. You can say, it I know your deeds. Or you can say, I know your deeds. It's all about context and how this works and how you view this whole thing. And so here are their deeds. One, Jesus knows that they've kept his word. They've been obedient. So Two ways they've been obedient. They've been obedient to um, the mission. So they've been in the midst of persecution. They're going out and they're reaching their city. And the second thing is they have been obedient in response to God's grace in their lives. So I think what's happened is is they've understood that Jesus is great and amazing. And why would I want to ever do anything to harm my relationship or not to honor him? And so that's a responsive way that we do good works. And so Jesus is saying, I know your deeds. I know that you have been obedient. I know that you have been true to my word. The second thing he says is, I know that you have not denied my name. And I look at this and I say, if they were not experiencing persecution and if they were not being proactive about telling people about Jesus, why would there ever be an opportunity for them to deny the name of Christ? It wouldn't exist. I think I think about ourselves, I think about us in this room, and I think about if we are not experienced persecution or if we don't ever tell anybody about Jesus, then there really is no opportunity for us to deny the name of Christ, is there? And so you look at this passage, and I'm like, this is us, this is us, this is us, and it's amazing. Third thing, Jesus knows that they have little strength. And I don't think he's saying to them, Okay, I know you're wee- a bunch of weaklings, you're wimpy, like you're not doing a good job. It's not that at all. I think what he's saying is, you're weak, and you know you're weak. And therefore, you're reliant upon me. I think that's what he's saying. I think it's an issue of posture. He's saying this, your posture towards me is one of weakness, because you know the reality of who you are, and you know the reality that you are, are capable of doing anything, and you need me in a huge, huge way. And so that's the deeds that he knows. He knows that that is their position. And so as a church, it may mean that they're a small church. Maybe not. It may mean that they're a big church that's just relying upon Christ. I don't know. But I think in the South, so many times we get this mixed up, don't we? And we think there's something inherently bad about being small or inherently bad about being big. As a church. And I think that's where Jesus is kind of blowing this up. He's not saying, well, that's not really not the, the issue. What I want you to be is reliant. What I want you to be is weak. You see, sometimes small churches, let me get, let you into the world of church, okay? So being someone who's been on staff at a church for the last 15 years, right? So I have a little bit of experience with the inner workings of church and the way things can go good and the way things can maybe not go so good. A lot of times, small churches look at big churches and go, oh, I just wish we could be that. And so they view their success and their failure based upon two things, okay? <clears throat> Attendance, okay, and budget. And buildings, too. But those are kind of the three three biggies. And so usually when you go to a conference, I've been to a conference before, and one of the first questions, people would be like, oh, how big of a church is yours, you know? It's like, yeah, I got, we got 1,800 people coming, you know? But it's deader than a doornail, you know? And so I think there's something to be said about little churches that want to be big for the sake of being big. They think that there's something magical about that. The opposite happens when you're a big church. You look at small churches and say, mm, there's probably a reason why you're small. You probably don't gather together like we do. We got this thing figured out. We are a machine for Jesus, you know? And I think that's what Jesus is blowing up in a sense here, is he's saying, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I want you guys to be reliant, and I want you to be humble, and I just want you to trust me because I'm trustworthy. And I think that's a great place for us really to be, especially here at Cross Point. Can we be humbly faithful? Can we do that? Humbly faithful, recognizing that we're weak and we need Jesus. So, Jesus is really encouraging the weak church to endure and to press on. This door is open. Walk through it. Tell people about me. And I think that's a word of encouragement that is great for Philadelphia, but it's also, also really great for us. Let's cruise on here to verse uh, 9. Here we go. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. So apparently there's a couple different groups of people in town. There's the Christians, and the Christians are made up of two groups of people. A group of Gentile people, so non-Jewish people and Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus. That's what made up the Christian church back then, okay? And then you've got a group over here of Jewish people that have kind of been spread and moved out of Israel, and they have a synagogue in town, okay? And so they're still trying to impose all this legalism and all these things of old time upon these people. And they don't like that they're talking about Jesus because they don't think that he was the Messiah. And so they are just beating these people down as much as they possibly can. Jesus goes so far as to say that these people are satanic. I mean, that's pretty strong terminology, don't you think? To call a group of people satanic. But when you really define the, the, the issue with Satan, okay? Let me just throw this out. This is not my notes. Why did Satan get cast out? Like, why is he bad? It's because he opposed God and he wanted to be God. And so the reality is, is this church is opposing god and his people and that's why he's calling them satanic and those are really really strong words he also says that they're liars satan is the father of lies but there will come a point in time where they'll submit to the kingship of jesus now you can read this passage and think oh well they're submitting to jesus or they're submitting to and worshiping the people of god rather than god himself that would be a problem that's not how this works but the reality is, is that they are worshiping and falling at the feet of the people of God, recognizing that Jesus is supreme and amazing. This whole thing, super, super ironic. All right? Super ironic. And here's why it's ironic. It's because back in the Old Testament, the Gentiles always bowed down, for the most part, to the Israelites, except for the point in time that they were taken captive. But it was a common occurrence for the Gentiles to bow down to the Jews, right? So let me read you a couple quick passages. Isaiah 60 says this. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call the city of the Lord Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Another one, Isaiah 45, 15. They will bow down before you and plead with you. And this is what they'll say, surely God is with you and there is no other. There is no other God. Exact same thing flipped on its head. Here are the Jewish people in the town of Philadelphia who Jesus is saying, they're going to come and bow for you, recognizing that I am who I said I was. And they will acknowledge that Jesus loves his people, and they will acknowledge that Jesus loves his church. So he's saying, press on. What about us? What about persecution as it pertains to us? Let me just take a little side road here. How do we respond? Do we patiently endure? Or do we say, I think I'm just going to mind my own business here and keep my mouth shut. Do you keep the peace at all costs? Do I? Jesus obviously wanted his message to move forward. Regardless of the opposition. In fact, if you think about the early church and you think about how the church spread across the nations, what was the impetus for that? It's was persecution, wasn't it? People were persecuted and they were like fleeing. And that's what God used for his gospel to move forward across the nations. And so persecution is obviously a pretty major thing. Okay. I love reality TV. Okay, I'm just gonna say it. I love reality TV. Like I am always looking for the latest and greatest reality show and most of them are pretty lame and terrible. So, uh, but my favorite, my favorite, check this out, Storm Chasers. How many of y'all watch Storm Chasers? What? Oh, here we go. I love this. I love this show. I think they canceled it and they put it on Weather Channel now, or something like that. So, you know, you're a nerd when you watch reality TV on the Weather Channel. But anyway, uh, but I love storm chasers. Like I grew up in Nebraska, you know, like Tornado Alley was like my backyard I remember as a kid going camping in Lake McConaughey. It's this giant lake out in western Nebraska. I'm pretty sure it's the only thing of significance in my state, um, but it's out there. And we went camping. I remember this. As a kid, I was probably maybe 10 years old, something like that. So we went camping, and storm the storm kind of came in. We're like, oh, this is weird. And I remember walking out to the edge of the lake like this, looking across this lake that was probably five to seven miles across. I mean, it's huge. And there are two tornadoes. In this field, like spinning around each other. And I'm going, what do we do now? Like, we're in tents. You know, this is what I'm used to is like when the tornado sirens go off at home, like we head for cover. We go in the basement. My parents stick us all in the bathtub. I'm not sure what that will do about anything, but we're in the bathtub, in the basement, protected and safe. We take cover. And now we're in the middle of this place with a tent. And I remember hearing my parents talk about what are we gonna do? And we just stood there. We didn't do anything. We were like, Well, I hope it doesn't hit us. I mean, that that was our response. <laughs> but what I love about storm chasers is here's a bunch of crazy people that actually try to drive into tornadoes. Now little ones, not the big ones. And they have these giant tanks full of technology, which I love. It's like this big, like, with, like, hydraulic spikes that go in the ground that's supposed to keep it in the ground. I'm like, that thing will rip that up in, like, no time, or it lowers the ground so the air doesn't get underneath it. They're amazing. They're amazing. I'm like, I want to drive one of these in a tornado. But, but I've seen so many episodes where they would drive in this tornado, and the first time that it ever happened, I remember it. They're sitting in this thing, and they're, like, freaking out, and you can just see the winds flying by their windows and around and round in this debris and I'm going, what? what happens if, like, a tree like, comes through the side? Like, what are you going to do now? Um, but what happened is something actually did. He forgot to roll up the bulletproof windows, and it hit just the regular glass, and it went poof. And it was just all this stuff, and he's bleeding. And I'm going, you're nuts. This is crazy. You're not supposed to do this. And they end up being fine. But I think, in a sense, okay, that's what Jesus is calling the people of Philadelphia to do. He's saying, the storm is raging, and it's rough, and it's dangerous. He says, but I want you to go into it, because for the people in storm chasers, it was worth it. They were like, we, with the data that we're going to collect, we're going to save lives. Like, that's their motivation for this. And I think for Jesus, he's saying, it's worth it. For people to come to faith in me, it's worth it. Enter the storm. Don't run for cover. And that's what he's saying to the church of Philadelphia, and I think it's amazing. Let's move on. Verse 10. I'll quit talking about reality TV. Here we go. Since, since you have kept my commandments, okay, so more commendation, and you've endured patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come to the whole world and test the inhabitants on the earth. He's saying, because you are with me, because you have endured, because you have placed your faith in me, you are a believer. Like, you are my sheep. Like, nobody's going to snatch you from me. Because of that, you're not going to have to experience the judgment that everyone else is going to have to experience. You know, I grew up Catholic. And as a Catholic, I believed my, most of my uh, early life through my teens that um, I was going to be judged based upon my good works. Okay? Okay? And then when I became a Christian, I was like, no, that's not it, I'm judged by grace. And what I found out later on in life is both of those are true. Here's why they are true. For a Catholic, for me, before I knew Jesus when I was 17, that's when I became a believer. um, As a Catholic, I believed that I'd be judged by good works and my bad works. And the reality is, is I'm going to be. I'm going to be. But the standard in which I'm going to be judged is perfection. I have to be perfect. As a Catholic growing up, I would have had to been perfect every day of my life from the time that I was born to the time that I died, never had a bad thought, never said anything mean to anybody, never lied, never steal, never did anything else for my entire life, and it would work. It's an impossibility, isn't it? But that's the way I would be judged. But then when I became a Christian, when I was turned 17, things changed. The grace of God came into my life and now, when Jesus, when God sees me and judges me, he will see the blood of Christ covering my sin and taking from my sin. And so it does change, and that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, for the people of Philadelphia, you don't have anything to worry about. The rest of the earth will be judged by the good works, and they won't make it that way. But for you, you have me, and so you're steady, and you're secure, and you have nothing to worry about. And so he says, don't let anybody take your crown. Um, what he's talking about here is really kind of a, um, th- there will come a time where people will be commended and rewarded for pursuing Jesus and surrendering their lives to him. Okay? Let me, let me point this out. It's in 2 Timothy 4.8. And here's what it, Paul says this. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on me, award to me on that day, not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. And so what Jesus is saying is, remain steadfast. Don't give in to temptation. Like, pursue obedience because you just love me so much and you're so thankful for what I did for you. And he says, and if you do that, you'll gain a crown of righteousness. And I think what it is, it's more than just a crown. We're kind of like, oh, it's a crown, whoop-dee-doo. I think what it is, it's an issue of commendation. It's an issue of standing before Jesus unashamed and, say, and he says, way to go. Way to trust me. Way to surrender your life to me and just let me do my thing. That's amazing. And I think that's the posture that he wants. And that is our desire and what we want to hear in the end. So it goes on in verse uh, 12. I hope I haven't jumped over anything here. Verse 12 says this, "The only one to, uh, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of my city, in the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on them my new name. Those people that endure will be found victorious. And those are the people that Jesus will mark as his. You see, back in ancient times, like if you were someone else's property or you belonged to someone else, like you were actually marked. And so in a sense, that's what Jesus has done. Like he has paid a great ransom to save people. And when you respond and you say, I'm going to let Jesus pay that ransom for me, you become one of his positionally and practically And in every other way you can think of. And what he's saying is, I'm going to mark you, and you're going to be mine, and no one's ever going to unmark you. And I think for the people of Philadelphia, that's again an encouraging word to go, man, I'm just doing the best I can because I love Jesus. I'm enduring persecution because I just, I love him. Like, what else am I going to do? And so that's an encouraging word for them. This whole thing wraps up with verse 13. It says this, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I think that's a great, a great line. And the question for us is, are we listening? Are we listening? Final two things, here they are. We are the people of Philadelphia. That's who we are, in a sense. And so when you think about responding to Jesus, who he is, let me just ask you some questions, some things you just kind of rest with, and just answer those in your mind and think about where you are. Has the door been open to you personally? Like, do you personally have a relationship with Jesus? Does Jesus mean everything to you? Like, have you... Turn your life over to him. Whatever term you want to use. Is your life his or is it yours? I think that's the essence of salvation. The essence of what Jesus is saying is, like, are you mine or not? Do you believe that he's real? Do you believe that he's genuine? That he's trustworthy? That he's holy? That he's a savior? Like, do you believe these things or not? You know, would Jesus look at you and say, you're mine? For those of us that have it, would say, yes, let me ask you these questions. Would you say that you have patiently endured so far? Would you say that you have been someone that God would say, Jason has patiently endured? Or, he's patiently enduring currently, you know what I mean? Like, here we are, this is where I'm at right now, patiently enduring because honestly we don't really endure anything (laughs) we live in the united states where any sort of like enduring any sort of pain is our instant reaction is get me out of this as soon as possible like this moment that would be amazing because that's the the world in which we live in the culture we live in and there's a lot of other people in the world who are stuck in jails because they said no i won't deny christ and they're patiently enduring Or, there's people here in Petrie City, probably many of you in this room, who are patiently enduring, overcoming persecution, overcoming family members who've turned their back on you, enduring persecution at work, where you talk about Jesus and people don't like that. Patiently enduring in that, like you're engaged in the scripture and you want find out more about God in your relationship, patiently enduring that it's changing who you are and your value system is aligned with biblical values and not what you think. Like, those are all growing great things, and those are things that we should pursue. Would you and me, here it is, big question, when it came right down to it, would you deny Jesus in order to avoid persecution? That's a heavy one. Like, would you really do that? Would I really do that? I pray we would. Has the, uh, the door been opened to you to advance the gospel where you are? Like, do you believe that the message of Jesus is really great, or is it just something kind of, uh it's kind of part of my life? Because if we really believe it's true... We really believe he, he is who he says he is, and we really believe that it's great. Would we not want other people to know about it? How selfish of us to not tell anybody! Do we really want other people to know? Do we really believe? Let me. I'm just going to read this. That separation from God is tragic and avoidable. Shouldn't we be more motivated? So we are the people of Philadelphia. I think we're also the church cross point. Let me address this real quick. Philadelphia was strategically placed in the region a couple ways. One, it was this gateway to the east, right? I think it was also this way that was accessible to the Roman Empire. And that is huge and strategic for people in commerce. But it is also strategic for the gospel. Do you not think that Jesus is thinking, man, if you would just talk about me and you would just keep pursuing um, me in the midst of persecution and telling people about me it might get to sardis last week's church that was not doing so hot it makes sense it would be strategic like that they were put in a special place at a special time could it be say said the same exact exact thing for cross point peachtree city Think about it. A a church centered on the gospel, a bunch of weaklings, here we are, who are hopefully just relying on Jesus to do amazing things in us and through us, strategically placed in South Atlanta next to Pinewood Studios between Noonan and Sonoy and Fayetteville. Could it be that we are the gateway, in a sense, for God moving forward in South Atlanta, I think it's a great question. Could we, could can we not dream that way, and, and just pray and be like God? That would be amazing. Like if that's what you want to do. That's what we want to be. But we're gonna do it from a position of weakness. Sounds very counterintuitive, especially as I say it, even say it out loud. We're gonna do it from a position of weakness, knowing that our Jesus is big. He's not some small thing that we go and stick on a shelf somewhere and we kind of forget. But he is big and he is able and capable. He may choose to do that. He may not. But we're going to trust him. And we're just going to walk forward and see what he does. So let me wrap this up with this last statement. Kind of the one we began with. And here's, let me personalize this. We must remain steadfast in Jesus in the midst of persecution. And through us, he will bring the gospel to the region and the church to Christ. Think about that in light of that passage now. Like, if we remain steadfast in him, in the midst of persecution, we're telling people about Jesus through us, I think he's going to move his gospel forward. And I think that is the challenge for us today to think about is like, how is God moving through me to move his gospel forward? Because it's going to happen. That's the plan. That's the promise. And are we available? Are we willing? Are we willing to endure persecution? Not for being annoying, like we talked about that a couple times this spring. Not to be the annoying Christian. I'm not trying to do that. But be the one who truly, truly loves people. The church that is going to, like, jump in and be accepting of people who are different than us for the sake of pointing them to Christ. It's like Christ changed people. Like, that's not our job. Our job is to point people to Jesus and let Christ do the heavy lifting. And so we must submit to the holy and true God. That's it. We submit to the Holy. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's dot ccom